on some sides, I'm happy about it. I'm ecstatic about it. And others, I think it's a horrible decision and an abysmal course of action. It is the week of April 19th, and welcome to episode 76 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council. Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director, and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, returning guest Rob Walker, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group, and I'm Grant Haver, NSI Policy Program Manager. We are going to tackle two big issues this week, Afghanistan and Russia. First, Russia. Last week, the Biden administration announced new sanctions on Russia for election interference and the solar winds cyber attack. Russian troops are building up on the border with Ukraine, and the U.S. was sending Navy ships to the Black Sea. Meanwhile, the story from last year about Russia paying bounties for killing American troops in Afghanistan was revealed to be very thin. Jamil, let's start big picture. In terms of sanctions, President Biden is following Donald Trump's footsteps. Also, Biden is keeping Trump's ambassador, John Sullivan, in Moscow. Yet we hear from Speaker Pelosi that, quote, the era of Russia's impunity is ending, unquote. Is there really anything new here or is the U.S.-Russia adversarial relationship pretty much exactly where it was under President Trump? Well, I think it is different, Les. I think that um, obviously the Biden administration has gotten more strident in its uh, discussion of the Russia issue. There's no uh, there's no caveating like we saw with the president, um, you know, about whether he believes Putin or his intelligence community, right? This president is very clear on who he listens to and it isn't Vladimir Putin. It's, it's, it's the U.S. intelligence community, the U.S. national security structure, um, and he's been very clear about that. So I think there is a change uh, from that perspective as between this president and the former president. Uh, with respect to the larger effort, though, um, you're right. We are expanding our sanctions against Russia and key Russian individuals. Uh, we did boot out a number of diplomats, which has happened in the past, too, under the, under the Trump administration. Um, but I do think that um, what you're seeing here is increased pushback uh, against the Russians, and it's likely to continue for the Biden administration. The question, though, for the Biden administration is, will they go further, right? We know now uh, that uh, Russia has amassed about 150,000 troops on the border with Ukraine. That's roughly 15 to 20% of their military capacity. That's a huge amount of Russian troops, right? That suggests they are planning something, if nothing more than more little green men going into Ukraine and causing trouble, or an actual full-scale uh, invasion like we saw in Crimea earlier, Right. Um, we know the Obama administration uh, had a complete whiff on the Crimea uh, you know, invasion other than sanctions. They didn't respond to it effectively. Um, and it's made our other enemies around the globe more uh, aggressive. And it's made the Russians more aggressive. And so what, what will be the real test for the Biden administration is, one, what do, the Russia, what do we do about Ukraine and do we stand up there? And then second, we know that the Russians are in deep inside of our networks, right? We, we learned about this solar storm uh, hack. Uh, and we know that we've tried to push them out, but we know that they're still deep within many government and private sector networks. So the question becomes, what happens if the Russians threaten to go further than what they've done? So far, it's been intelligence collection. What happens if they threaten the, the stability of those systems or the quality of the data? What happens if the Russians start saying, well, you know, we're in the FDA systems. We might have messed with the FDA's, uh, you know, COVID vaccine data, right? The safety data, or the efficacy data, right? That's going to be, that can be hugely corrosive. What does the Biden administration do about that, either if actual action is taken or simply threatened? Do we have a clear declarative policy? And if not, 
Does that create more risk because the Russians are willing to sort of test the boundaries? That's where this thing sort of gets dangerous. And so I worry about those areas. And I worry the administration is not yet prepared to stand up aggressively uh, to the Russians um, in these areas. Speaking of that, Lauren, the administration announced it was sending two Navy ships into the Black Sea in response to the Russian buildup on the Ukrainian border. Those ships have now been called back. What kind of message is the administration sending to Russia? Well, I think the message in this particular case is one of, to get to Jamil's point also of, we're watching, we're taking steps, we're imposing sanctions. We've seen what you've done. We've acknowledged what you've done. And we're keeping this in reserve. You know, the the official message has been, this is normal. This is part of standard ship movements. You know, nothing really to see here. But I think the message diplomatically sent to Russia is, yeah, these are here. This could happen. If we need to escalate it, we can. We don't see the need to right now, which, you know, I'm okay with. Um, But this potential exists in the future. And I think there's support being shown for Ukraine, you know, legal aid being sent. Um, And I think that that is something that's going to continue ramping up. And we're going to continue seeing that support going specifically to Ukraine. Whereas things like the ships going into the Black Sea is something that we can can hold back on if and when we need to use that tool. Yeah, no, look, I I think that Laura makes a really important point about the need to to provide support to Ukraine. But the real question is, is the administration going to provide the kind of military support that Ukraine needs to defend itself? Right. Are we going to do that? And I fear that we're not. I fear this administration is concerned about conflict in the region and doesn't want to get enmeshed in that conflict. Uh, But we've seen what happens when prior administrations, the Obama administration, uh, didn't make a clear, didn't put out a clear signal to Russia about what would happen if if they invaded Crimea. They invaded Crimea. And they got away with it. Um, And so I worry that if we don't make clear that we would send military support to Ukraine and help defend them um, and help protect them from a Russian invasion, uh, that we're going to end up in the same place with parts of uh, significant parts of of, of the rest of Ukraine like we did with Crimea. And look, the Black Sea transit does make a difference. I get that it wasn't it was it was a normal planned transit. Right. But the decision to not do that sends a message. It says we're worried about the conflict. We don't want to be getting involved in the conflict. We're not interested in it do what you need to do. It's your, it's your area of responsibility. That is the wrong message to send to a country that's on the periphery of the former Soviet Union. It's a wrong message to send to a Vladimir Putin who is under pressure at home. And the last time he was under this much pressure at home, he lashed out by invading Crimea. It's the wrong message to send. It's a mistake. We should reverse it. Rob, let's, uh, let's go back to those sanctions that were announced last week. 32 individuals had sanctions imposed on them by the Biden administration. This is not dissimilar to what the Trump administration had done in similar situations. And back then, it didn't really seem to change Russian behavior. Do you think this new sanctions package is going to do anything to affect the way Russia behaves? No. Uh, Russia is Russia. Putin is Putin. The oligarchs are the oligarchs. I I think it goes to show that uh, the Trump administration was not as faulty as a lot of people were led to believe over the past four years in their handling of Russia um, writ large. But uh, I think it also goes to show that there are only so many tools in the national security toolbox that are available to any president. And often it takes time for these things to move. If if the Biden administration wishes to take a harder stance and a harder line against uh, Putin and his buddies, um, it's going to take some time to do that. Uh, but the wheels of government obviously, you know, turn slowly and, and deliberately. Uh, so I hope they set that forward and, and lay out a plan and, and go execute. 
But uh, for now, I think uh, it's sort of the the same playbook uh, from just different players. The one, the one thing that I, uh, Rob, that I thought might be different was this prohibition on Americans buying certain kinds of new Russian debt. Do you think that could be something that develop, if it develops further, is the kind of thing that might change Russian behavior? Uh, no, I don't think that that sort of investment is really a, a huge uh, boon to the Russian economy. I think most of their economic prowess comes from uh, their natural gas sales to Western Europe and Central Europe. I don't see that as being a long-term impact. There might be a short blip, um, but in the long run, people, money, capital will find a way to where it needs to be. Uh, so if it's American direct investment that's halted, money will find its way to Russia one way or another. All right, let's pivot a little bit and talk about the story about Russia offering bounties for Americans killed in Afghanistan. Last year, uh, there were stories in the media about uh, U.S. intelligence finding that Russia had been doing exactly this, offering people in Afghanistan bounties for killing American troops. The administration, the Trump administration said, kind of poo-pooed the allegation and said, this is not real. You know, don't pay attention. Democrats took big advantage of this. Both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris on the campaign trail said basically that Trump was turning a blind eye to Russia killing Americans. It was a terrible charge. They made it. It was just revealed last week that uh, the intelligence community, in fact, has low, has medium to low confidence in the story, which essentially means it's not confirmed. It may be it may be a total mirage. What's the obligation here? And I'm uh, Lauren and Rob. I'm looking to you guys. What's the obligation here for the administration to go back and maybe correct the record about the stuff that Biden and Harris said earlier? I don't think there is an obligation. I don't think that. Right now, the president and the vice president of the United States need to go back to a specific individual and say, we're sorry. I think they have an obligation to pursue the intelligence and see whether or not it is something that can be confirmed. It is low to medium. Like you said, that doesn't mean it's non-existent. So I think figuring out the truth behind the actual allegations and the intel itself is what matters more than any obligation to soothe someone's feelings. I would say for the good of the intelligence community, there there is an obligation um, to go back and say either this was a leak and it was incorrect or to correct the record um, as to the, the veracity of the intelligence gathered. And, and they've done a bit of that. Um, I appreciate the low to medium, you know, um, label of it. But I think there's a longstanding history of the American general public questioning intelligence community, you know, um, analyses and, and, and reports. So anytime something like this comes up, I think it is imperative that senior leaders from, from the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines to the president and vice president come out and speak, um, you know, authority and, 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 um, and confidence into the national security community, especially the IC. Emil, what say you? Yeah, no, look, I mean, I think that the, the way this whole thing began, right, was these New York, this New York Times reporting, right, uh, that uh, that there had been, been these Russian bounties. It's not like Kamala Harris or Joe Biden were the first out of the pocket with this thing, right? Um, and so and that came from some sort of inside leak within the Trump administration, whether it was the IC or somewhere else. Um, and, and and they expressed confidence in this assessment. Now, if that assessment was wrong, uh, then then Rob is right. We need to come out and, and say it, right? Um, but, but sort of, you know, a apologizing to Donald Trump for what his own intelligence community leaked to the press. I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, they were simply, uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, repeating what they had seen in the press. And I think it's a fair criticism. If in fact the IC was right and there had been Russian bounties, why weren't we getting tougher? Now the Trump administration just as easily have said, Hey, this is incorrect. Let's declassify all the information. It's not like they were on a declassifying run all around, all over the IC 
declassifying information that wasn't that, that cut into the president's favor. So why not declassify the fact that the the assessment was low, low to low to moderate confidence or whatever the thing was, right? Um, but they didn't do that. So now you know Kamala Harris and Joe Biden owe Donald Trump an apology. I mean, listen, if we're talking about who owes people apologies, the list of apologies that Donald Trump owes includes the American people for starting an insurrection on January sixth. Let's start there. If we're looking for uh, apologies on people who took very significant actions based on intel that later proved to be incorrect, I think we've got some better examples over the last 20 years. All right. I will, I, I'm going to go ahead and opine here. Yes, I agree with you, Jamil. The, the Trump himself does not deserve the apology. But I think there's a huge opportunity here for President Biden and Vice President Harris to kind of restore some faith in the U.S. government. There's a, there's a, there's a real nice setup here for them to kind of walk back to last year and say, you know what? We should not have taken at face value those reports. We didn't see the confirmed intelligence. We were wrong. We're going to walk that back. We think that it's important that going forward, people in our position only say things that they can truly confirm and that we stop having these partisan battles over intelligence and national security in the press. And in and in so doing will in fact further impugn the record of the last president for for himself never doing that. So I think there's I think there's an opportunity here for this administration to kind of take the super high road, which is where they should be anyway particularly on matters of intelligence and national security, and really do some good here. All right, Grant, that's your segue to Afghanistan. Take over, man. Perfect. So last Wednesday, President Biden announced that America's troops would be leaving Afghanistan by no later than September 11th, 2021, almost 20 years since the first troops were sent. Over the course of the war, America has spent almost $1 trillion and more than 2,300 Americans lost their lives alongside more than 64,000 Afghans in the security forces. So let's just go ahead and put the bottom line up front. If the president does remove all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, Afghanistan. What are the key metrics we should be watching to see if the strategy is successful? And what do you expect to see in the next five years in Afghanistan? Lauren, let's start with you. Well, first of all, I think I just had a visceral reaction to the word, what kind of metrics should we have in Afghanistan? Because I feel like if you've lived in DC at any point in the last 20 years, you've probably either asked or been asked or heard someone ask that question at least 20 times with 2000 different answers. So What we should be looking for, first of all, this is a decision that I think anyone who's paid attention to Afghanistan since we've been there is conflicted about. This, There is no clear cut win, loss, good, bad, yes, no about this because there is, it, it is such a complex situation with so many different lives and policies and efforts all just tied up into it. So um, there are, there are positives and negatives on all side of it. But I think if we're looking for what we hope to see after this is implemented, as we, as we go forward, you know, I think we have to go back to the reasons that were there in the first place. I, you know, I want to see whether or not Afghanistan becomes a breeding ground for terrorist activity again. I want to see whether or not the Taliban takes over and sets the country back 100 years in terms of human rights for, for the majority of the population. I want to know whether or not those things happen and the national security of the United States is protected by the situation on the ground. Uh, I want to know if those types of environments that allowed things like 9-11 and ISIS and other, you know, Al-Qaeda to, to proliferate, come back into being, or, or if those are able to be prevented. 
And, you know, do we need boots on the ground to keep that from happening? No, but we'll see. Les, what do you think? Well, I I agree with Lauren and I I appreciate her candor on the president's decision. The one thing I would would add is I'd look immediately for an uptick in foreign fighters going into Afghanistan. Uh, There's there's going to be a lot of people in the world who see this as, as an opportunity as U.S. and NATO troops come out. So I'd I'd be paying pretty close attention to uh, to that phenomenon. Rob, uh, you you served in the Middle East uh, well for the United States. What do you think we should be be looking for in terms of success in Afghanistan over the next five years? Uh, so full disclosure, I did not get the Afghanistan T-shirt uh, a couple of times in Iraq, once in Kuwait, but never to Afghanistan. Uh, big props to all my friends and colleagues and service members who, and women who have uh, been there. It's it's a tough fight. It was a tough area. Um, and as Lauren alluded to, it's it's you know comes across with mixed feelings. Um, uh, on some sides, I'm I'm happy about it. I'm ecstatic about it. And others, I I think it's a, a horrible decision and a and a abysmal uh, course of action. Um, I'm with Lauren. Metrics are difficult. And yes, we've seen so many. We've seen very colorful charts. We've seen uh, paths to war, paths to peace that have all, you know, for one reason or another, fallen by the wayside. But things I'll be watching for uh, is, again, the reason we went in there is that was to eliminate a safe haven for the planning of the next 9-11 and other terrorist activities. It bothers me that candidate Biden from several years ago and even Vice President Biden and Senator Biden before that alluded to reducing forces but leaving a strong counterterrorism presence and that doesn't seem to be on the table now uh as something that he's willing to do um secretary blinken came out officially recognizing that bagram air force base will be fully turned back over to the afghan people uh which i think is good but also represents a strategic retreat that gives us uh limited if not i i Actually, I'm going to say no presence in Central Asia at this point, um, since we also pulled out of uh, K2. And the thing that I'm most concerned with is, uh, so we saw in 1980, the bear went over the mountain. I'm concerned about the dragon coming over the mountain now. China is going to fill, is going to backfill our presence there, not in terms of a security presence. They're not going to fight a counterinsurgency war. They're not going to worry about the Taliban. Uh, they're going to move in and they're going to buy all the rare earth element uh, mines and mountains there in Afghanistan and strip the country bare of uh, assets and not really care about environmental problems, not really care about social problems. Um, you're going to see an emboldening China move into that space, in my opinion. So Jamil, uh, you wrote two years ago a paper for NSI arguing for a surge of troops into Afghanistan. Uh, what do you think of the the move the president has made? What should we be watching for in the next five years? It's a catastrophic mistake. The president's decision to precipitously withdraw from Afghanistan without uh, abiding by what uh, for 20 years uh, we've taken the view that if there was a withdrawal, it should be conditions-based. President Biden has explicitly rejected the conditions-based approach and said, we're just done. We're walking away. We're out. And the fact of the matter is that the Taliban will be back in power within six months of our departure. Al-Qaeda and ISIS will find a new home once again in Afghanistan. Rob is right that China and uh, and Russia and other nations will become more influential there, Iran. And ultimately, it'll become another haven for terrorists. I predict that before the end of the Biden administration, just like with the Obama administration's precipitous withdrawal from Iraq, we will be back in Afghanistan before this administration is over. And, that it, and it will be more costly in terms of lives and American resources to go back like it was in Iraq. This is a mistake. It should be reversed. It should never have been done. There's a good reason why the last two presidents, both of whom wanted to walk away from Afghanistan, couldn't. This president, by walking away from it now, is making a massive, massive mistake. So, Jamil, just to quickly follow up, I know that 
you know, Afghanistan's only one of a number of failed states which could harbor terrorists that are interested in attacking the United States. Uh, we've shown that we can keep them at bay in other places in Africa and the Middle East through off, you know, offshore balancing with drones, some special uh, forces boots on the ground. And, you know, Jake Sullivan has said, if we think that there's going to be something that happens, we'll know a month in advance. Is he wrong? Yes. The idea that we would know, we're not going to be able to run source operations in Afghanistan because all of our intelligence community uh, components are going to have to retreat back to the back to wherever they can because uh, they won't be out of four bases operating forward because they have no combat search and rescue, right? There won't be any any way to rescue them. So they're going to have to retreat. We're going to have to shut down most of our intelligence collection operations. And by the way, we wrap all those bases, all the signals intelligence collection that we have in Afghanistan, that all goes away too because where do you think all those servers and computers will be housed? We're not going to leave them in. We're not going to leave them in the Afghans' hands, right? So the idea somehow that we're going to be better at intelligence collection the day after we walk away is a joke, right? And the fact that we've been able to luckily stave off a massive catastrophic terrorist attack from Africa, where we where we haven't had a big presence or reducing our presence now. And, I mean, just look at ISIS. ISIS established a territorial caliphate after we walked away from Iraq. What do you think is going to happen in Afghanistan? This is not hard to figure out. We've seen the show before. Every single time. Our country's taking advantage of a peace dividend where we think things have gotten better. So we walk away. We had to go back in and double down. We wasted more money, more blood, more treasure. This is a mistake. And there's no two ways about it. Jake Sullivan can say whatever he wants about how we'll know about a terrorist attack ahead of time. That'll be cold comfort when the day it happens. So if I can jump in here, Grant. Yeah, I... I'm, I'm with Jamil. Uh, I'm harking back to Operation New Dawn and you put a mark on the wall and the enemy knows your timeline and they're going to drive their operations based on your operations. The Taliban knows based on our very public uh, discussions that we're going to be out on the 20th anniversary of September 11th, which I who in did they run that by the communications office or did somebody just wake up one day and say, oh, this is a great date. Look, it matches. I, I don't understand how that date was chosen. I, I don't I didn't understand Trump's May 1st date either, to be fair. Um, when when you put a definitive timeline on military operations, the enemy's vote is then to increase their operations right after that, right after you're gone. In Operation New Dawn, the JV team of, of ISIS that built up into the caliphate uh, should have been a reminder. President, Vice President Biden was on watch at that time. Uh, he should have been aware of that and needs to put in further conditions on the ground based metrics for this withdrawal, not just be precipitous on that date. So Lauren, they often talk about Afghanistan being the uh, graveyard of empire, right? Britain went in in the 1800s, famously, uh, Dr. Watson of Sherlock and Holmes fame was injured in the Afghan war for the British. Uh, Russia went in um, in the uh, 20th century and came out. The U.S. is going in. And or as we out. used to call them, Grant, the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union went in uh, in the 20th century and came out. And now America has, has sort of found that same trajectory. Is it just that there is nothing that can solve Afghanistan and that regardless of what forces you bring to bear, it just is a, a difficult country and difficult region? Or is it that, like Jamil has said, we just aren't committed to, to doing it? Well, I think there's a there's a perspective here that 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 changes the question just a little bit, as opposed to thinking. And this is where there are pieces of what Jamil said and pieces of what Rob said that make sense to me, but not the overall perspective 
that I, I believe they approach the question. I don't think Afghanistan is a country where we can fix it for them and we can remake them into our image. To think that is so arrogant and has gotten so many empires, so many nations into these quagmires in the past. Afghanistan is not a country where you can walk in. And I'm, I'm not saying there are countries that are this way, but Afghanistan in particular is not a country where you can walk in and say, we're going to eliminate this threat that we have. And oh, by the way, now we're just going to fix you and make you all nice and shiny and democratic. It, it's not going to work that way. It's not, it doesn't mean that it's not an important effort. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be promoting democracy around the world, but Afghanistan is going to come to a place where it chooses to come on its own. This is this is aside from the decision that we're discussing right now, good, bad or ugly. But the Afghanistan people, the government, the security forces that we've been training, the government that we've been helping again, good, bad or ugly, they are the ones who have to determine what happens to them in the future. And uh, again, it's hard to say whether or not the decision in this shape and on this timeline works. But I think that to think that we were going to go in there and we were going to stay there until they looked exactly the way we wanted them to look. That doesn't make sense either. Um, so I, I think we have, we have trained, we have equipped, we have built, we have done, we have done what we can do. Is there more to be done? Absolutely. It, do the Afghanistan people need to step up now? Yeah. What, if I can um, kind of agree with Lauren and push back a little bit, she's quite right. We're not going to make Afghanistan look like the United States. Uh, but we also shouldn't set that out as our goal or some sort of end point. The point of our being there is not to transform Afghan society. It's, it is a nice side effect that while we are there, we can change uh, the human rights situation. We can allow for, the, for girls' education in particular uh, and make some improvements. But we shouldn't hold our breath at all waiting for Afghanistan to turn into the United States or France, or South Africa, or anything else. Afghanistan is going to be Afghanistan. We're in Afghanistan because we want to prevent it from turning into a hotbed for terrorist action against our country. And as, as Jamil uh, pointed out quite exquisitely, that's exactly what it's going to become after we pull out. It's just a matter of time. The Taliban will take over. The Taliban will invite in other terrorist forces. They will align themselves with the folks who are opposed to our way of life and bad things are going to happen. We're probably going to have to go back in and fix it. Or if we don't, then we're going to have to live with some some very bad consequences. So I just I just want to make sure that we're not setting up a straw man here. The question is not uh, leave Afghanistan or try to turn it into the United States. The question is leave Afghanistan or stay there with a modest sized force that hopefully does not require a lot of blood and treasure to maintain so that so that we can be there and prevent it from turning into this hotbed of terrorism. Yeah, Jamil, before hopping over to, to you, uh, Les, we had a, a uh, conversation last week, which you can hear on NSI Live, about Mozambique and the terrorist, uh, terrorist threat there. Um, you know, Al-Shabaab, uh, Boko Haram, even ISIS were mostly focused on their domestic issues, the issues in the region, the near enemy per se. 
Um, what makes you think that Afghanistan will be significantly different and that they will be focused more on attacking us than dealing with internal Afghan or Central Asian issues? Well, it's it's just based on recent history, Grant, because that's exactly what happened uh, 20 years ago when uh, the Taliban took over. They let al-Qaeda walk in there uh, and use it as a, as a platform to attack us. That's how we got 9-11, uh, as those of us who are of a certain age know all too well. Uh, it, it is true that global terrorist networks are opportunistic. It is, it is, it is, there is a reasonable scenario that they won't choose Afghanistan as their next launching point because there's some better opportunity somewhere else. It's one of the reasons we probably should have talked about this on NSI Live. It's one of the reasons we should be at least a little bit concerned as a country about what's happening in northern Mozambique, because if ISIS, in fact, sees that as the place where it could do certain things or it could invite in others to do bad things, then, then sure, they're opportunistic. They'll take advantage of that. I suspect Afghanistan's the better place for them to do that rather than uh, you know southern Africa, but we'll see. We were just talking about how the the United States' goal should not be to remake Afghanistan in America's image. But uh, what we ended up with uh, was not a democracy, but a kleptocracy where corruption is pervasive, civil society remains fragmented, women and minorities are not even close to having equal rights or protections as they are to even Middle Eastern neighbors and Central Asian neighbors. The situation there is really, really not great. Um, So after 20 years of conflict, uh, what lessons should we learn as we continue to try to take on terrorism in failed states in uh, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa? For the counterterrorism mission, you know, it, it's, it can be immediate. It can be quick. Uh, you, you can go in and you take out a cell. You can cut off the head of the snake. You can um, strike targets. And that can be quick. You, it can happen within days, months, even a couple of years. If, you're having a lo- if your goal is to have a long-term impact in order to change the society, not necessarily to reflect your own country, but to have one of, of uh, openness and engagement and societal differences that prevent terrorism from sparking there, it takes longer than 20 years. Um, it takes a society that is willing to change. And uh, I think many of us who served uh, in those areas were a bit more optimistic about you know, our presence uh, and the impact it might have, and it could go quickly. Um, but clearly, there are generational differences. There are, you know, a- ancient differences uh, between the societies of Afghanistan, even northern Mozambique, Iraq, um, that aren't going to resolve themselves in a matter of a couple of decades. And, and our American psyche says that's a long time. Um, as as Afghans were, were known for saying is we have all the watches. We, the Americans, have all the watches, but they have all the time because they've been there for millennia. They're rooted in their societal um, understandings of the world. And our 20-year blip on their radar is not going to change that. So if if we truly want to have those long-term impacts, have those societal massive shifts in outlook and, and values, uh, we have to stay the course even longer. Um, I don't necessarily think that means um, repeating things like Kopkeating and other you know horrific incidents uh, across our past 20-year history, uh, but it does. It also doesn't mean fully precipitously withdrawing and pulling ourselves out of the conversation of helping that country change. Yeah, and you know, Grant. I mean, I think part of the part of the challenge with with the situation we face is that look, we're not going to. I think I think Lauren's right. We're not going to change these societies overnight, uh, nor should we necessarily try to, as Les has said. Um, and that's not the goal, right? But as Rob pointed out, the fundamental goal here is 
to keep Americans safe and to keep our country safe from terrorism here in the United States. The fact of the matter is we can fight. Terrorists have not stopped wanting to kill us. Al-Qaeda is still out there. They are capable and they will attack us again when we give the opportunity. ISIS is the same. And there are additional splinter groups from amongst these groups out there that want to do the same and are, are trying to upgrade their capacity, right? The only way to be successful and to keep this threat at bay, besides the long-term changes that Rob and you all were talking about, is to fight that threat overseas. We can either fight them here or we can fight them overseas. There's no not fighting them, right? The, the people who believe that we need to end all endless wars, right, seem to believe that we've won, right, or that... Uh, that the war is over because the enemy has given up. The enemy has not given up. The enemy still wants to kill us and kill us at home. So we can either fight them there or we can fight them here. So the administration, this administration has decided we're not going to fight them there. Okay, that's a choice. But don't be surprised when they show up on our borders or inside our borders. And then we have to go back to Afghanistan and other places because we've let this problem fester because we gave in to the, it's just time to bring our troops home and end this endless war that isn't over for the other side. I think if we're if we're talking about lessons, there are some that we can can learn here. Um, I think to address a little bit of Jamil's point, I had to kind of kind of kind of smile in that sort of oh boy kind of way with the you know if if we're not gonna we're either gonna fight them here or over there. You know we've we've been hearing that from a lot of Republican administrations for a very long time, and there's a degree of truth to that. There are bad people out there. There are terrorist organizations out there who would happily end our way of life. And that is it. Absolutely. Do we need to keep doing that? I think we need to be careful equating this decision, which is important in that effort with, we're not going to do anything anywhere ever again. We're going to stop all of our efforts, all of our special operations efforts around Africa and all these other places around the world. We're just going to end all of that because that's what this is. We're just going to, we're all just going to come back home. We're going to sit here. We're just going to wait for them to come in and get us. That's not what this is. And it frustrates me to equate it with that because the, that takes us back to this global war on terror mindset that good God, I thought we had finally gotten past, um, at least from a messaging perspective (laughs) that, Yes, we are still conducting counterterrorism operations around the world right now. All of that isn't going to stop because we're not in Afghanistan. That becomes an effort. That becomes part of what we're doing. But to to go back to your question, Grant, um, and and set aside some of that frustration that you know here we go again. It's all or nothing. Um, when in reality, it's it's not. Um, when we look at the lessons we learned from Afghanistan, I think one of the big there are two big ones that jump out to me, and one of them is that. It feels like this was a mission that started with a very specific focus. It started with a very specific focus to eliminate the safe haven for the terrorist organizations that attacked us and to prevent them from coming back. And very shortly after that effort was launched, we stopped paying attention to that. We muddied the waters with Iraq. We went in over there. People started equating the two. The American public, you know, was wrapping all of that up into one big bundle. And I think we lost the focus. And I think that the the effort to prevent that safe haven changed from a specific target on those groups and those environments and turned into the only way to do that is to remake the country. And I think there is a line somewhere in between. Again, it was all or nothing and it can't be the all. We just talked about that. It's not, we're not going to remake them into a Western style 
democracy. But I think there's a there's an in-between in there somewhere. And I think the lesson we've learned is that the focus has to stay on where we started. But we also, along the way, put a lot of the effort and a lot of the burden of doing that on our military, when in reality, there were other parts of our government that were better equipped to do those kinds of things. I think that's a lesson that we have, have we've talked about it here before, about what should be a mission for DOD and what should be a mission for someone else. We have other organizations that are good at that. Um, and I think that going back, we could have restructured some of those efforts in a different way and maybe ended up in a different place. So Jamil, to add on to that point a little bit, you know, the, the president has said we're going to have a robust diplomatic presence there. We're going to still continue to, to provide development resources and we are going to have drones and special forces you know, positioned in such a way that we can go back in if necessary, you know, is that still too little? And how much would you go back to current, you know, current status quo versus more to maintain American security? No, it's not sufficient. Uh, The idea that we're going to have diplomats running around trying to deal with Al Qaeda, that's a joke right? Diplomatic presence doesn't help deal with the with Al-Qaeda and ISIS threat in Afghanistan. Development assistance, while long-term beneficial to that country and to us, uh, doesn't stop the Al-Qaeda and, and, and Taliban and ISIS presence. What holds them at bay and what's held them at bay for 20 years is the presence of American troops, not in theater, not next door to come in when they're needed, but in the country there and ready to protect the Afghan, the fairly weak Afghan government and our allies there, um, and uh, and to protect American national security interests. Right? Look, it's it's easy to say, uh, you know, we're not we're not going to turn Afghanistan democracy. We shouldn't. Nobody said that. That's not the argument here. Right? The argument is, what are we going to do? We went to prevent it from being a safe haven for terrorists. Have we succeeded? Hmm. The very Taliban who we who controlled that country before are about to come back into power. Right. Have we made it less of a safe haven? For 20 years we have. Why? Because we kept them on the run. We're about to let them back in. It's going to become a safe haven as soon as we walk away. And by the way, that's true. That was true in Iraq. All we have to do is look down the road to the Middle East and see what happened when we walked out of Iraq. It became a hotbed of terrorism. They established a territorial caliphate because we walked away. And what do we have to do? We had troops in the theater. And what happened to those troops in the theater? They went back in. So we're going to be back in that situation again. This idea, this chimeric idea that, oh, we have to get away from the idea of a global war on terror. You know what's kept Americans safe for 20 years? The global war on terror. We've kept Americans safe because we've chased Al-Qaeda around the globe, run them into, into rat holes, right? Killed terrorists on the battlefield. It's a wonder why all of a sudden terrorists are exploding randomly in the northern areas of Pakistan. It's not a mistake. It's not just by accident that's happening. That's why they haven't planned attacks against us because they're on the run. The minute we stop putting pressure on, whether it's Afghanistan or elsewhere, they're going to go to that safe place and they're going to hang out there. So no, and no amount of drones is going to solve that problem. What's kept us safe in Afghanistan is not troops nearby, it's troops in country. And we are walking away with, from it without reaching the conditions we set for ourselves. Hey, I'm all about a conditions-based withdrawal. It's just too bad this president decided we're done with conditions-based approaches. We just need to get out. Remember Vietnam? Remember the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan? This looks just like that. And this administration needs to know that and realize what they're doing. Last last word on Afghanistan for now, although I'm sure we'll come back uh, plenty of times before troops fully withdraw. Thank you so much, Grant. I'm going to go way meta here 
and point out that it's not just President Biden, it was also President Trump. And there is, and there is a line here of continuity from the last administration to this one. Most people will never say that because they're so different in other respects. But this is this retreat, and that's what it is, it's a retreat, is a, is a long time coming. And it's the product of our political system. Both parties have elected presidents who wanna pull out of Afghanistan. Those of us in the national security community who care about American leadership should take this under very serious advisement. And it is not a no brainer that we just keep people in places like Afghanistan. We have to do better at working together across party lines and across different ideologies uh, to find the things that we have in common and work together to promote them in a way that the American people notice and accept, right? It's not enough to yell and scream at each other. We shouldn't be uh, saying it's okay when our politicians do it. We shouldn't be doing it. We should be. We should hold each other to a higher standard. We should work better together. We should. We should be able to talk about stuff like this openly. And let's be realistic about where the American people are and and where the politics in this country are going. We should be able to react to that. We can play a leadership or advisory role in that process. I think we can do a better. We, those of us on this podcast and others like us, can do a better job of doing that. Great. So that takes us to our under the radar segment, where every week each one of us. Uh, takes a turn at talking about an issue that is undercovered in in the media. Let's go first to Lauren. So my under the radar issue is kind of a little bit of an extension of our Afghanistan conversation. It has brought it even more importantly into the spotlight right now and and demands timely attention, not just a low key conversation that we have over and over. And that is the uh, the visa program, the special immigrant visa program, the CIV program that was developed to help the individuals in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq who have worked closely with the U.S. presence there, particularly with the U.S. military. Um, Most obvious group of this are the uh, interpreters who have worked uh, with our folks on the ground and put themselves and their families in direct danger um, of retaliation and This is a program that has been all over the map for years from the time that it was authorized by Congress. Um, A certain number of visas are authorized every year. I believe there's 4,000 authorized in 2021. There's currently a backlog just among the interpreters of 17,000 individuals who are waiting to have their visa applications um, adjudicated and determined whether or not they qualify and and can have this visa. Um, There's an expected surge now um, of applications as the great fear, both among the Afghans themselves, as well as here among the U.S., among, among those of us who watch this population, that they will be severely and significantly targeted. Um, it has happened before. It happened in Vietnam. We've seen it. There are generations of veterans and frontline civilians who have just watched this happen over and over, and we have the ability to do something about it. Uh, There are currently over 10,000 visas available, um, but without the additional resources to the program, this is those aren't going to be those aren't going to be uh, given out, doled out, whatever our word is right now in um, in a timely fashion. To matter. So this program needs the resources, it needs the people, it needs the authority and the funding. 
um, to actually take care of these people in a way that we promised and live up to our, our responsibilities. Um, there, are, there are organizations and individuals who are really pressing on this and who have done just amazing work. Um, no One Left Behind is a significant or has a significant voice in this area, um, some really great leaders, and they've made a really big headway in this area since since started. And for those looking for more information, check them out. They also need funding and resources um, in addition to help pressuring the U.S. government to do the right thing. Rob, hey, Lauren, thank you for paying attention to that. I've tried for 10 years to help some of my Iraqi partners get over here, and it's it's just a unknowable puzzle palace system that uh, it, it's difficult for them to figure out. It's even difficult for us to figure out. So I I, I wish all those in Afghanistan who are facing this uh, the best and trying to get through it. Um, and, and thank you for paying attention to that issue. My, my issue for the week is um, uh, looking at uh, China and their moves recently towards Taiwan. Um, uh, we saw a blunder of a start to the relationship with the current administration and the Chinese um, government with uh, the Anchorage meeting. Um, and now the first person setting foot in China representing the, the government, the current administration is the climate czar and John Kerry. Uh, while China is flying armed incursions into Taiwanese airspace, uh, sailing their ships through the Straits of Taiwan, which they have the right to do, but they're doing it in a far more aggressive manner than than we typically do. Uh, so I, I'm just watching: is is China moving soon? Uh, are they are they observing our strategic retreat and saying, "Hey, now's our time to move"? Um, or you know, what will be the relationship? What's the future of Taiwan? And and we're all very concerned with that because they produce like 94 percent of the American microchips. So uh, keep your eye on that space. Jamil, what are you following this week? So Grant, I'm following the ongoing uh, situation in Pakistan, uh, where there are major street protests uh, in Lahore. Uh, based on the uh, arrest um, and detention of a uh, group, uh, Islamist group leader. Uh, they're a hardline group that is concerned about blasphemy. Uh, they're very critical of a recent publication by, uh, by a French publication uh, about the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, we've seen uh, the Pakistani uh, government uh, react. Um, and now, uh, as they went to go arrest the leader, um, there were six uh, Pakistani uh, a government of a government affiliated individuals, including a couple of policemen, uh, kidnapped by the group and now are being held. And so a very tense situation, obviously, in Pakistan. Um, one of the one of the many challenges facing uh, the new or the new ish now Prime Minister Imran Khan um, uh, with the constant challenge that he faced in his country of extremism. Them, uh, both of the religious variety, but also the militant variety. Here, uh, we have a group run by a young, a fairly young man, 26 year old, um, and uh, and his arrest uh, resulting in in, in massive uh, street violence, um, and now the the capture of some some uh, some Pakistani uh, officials. So, for my part, this week I'm following continued unrest in Northern Ireland. Uh, riots erupted last week, and nearly 90 police officers have been injured. Uh, there are many sources for this violence on the social front. Unionists and nationalists never fully integrated following the Good Friday Accords. Catholic schools are doing better than Protestant ones, and Catholics are likely to outnumber Protestants in Northern Ireland very soon. Economically, the customs border imposed in the Irish Sea has led to empty shelves at grocery stores, fuel shortages, and the feeling that Northern Ireland is no longer part of the UK. Peace is fragile. And the combination of COVID and Brexit could reopen old wounds. President Biden, a Catholic with both Irish and English heritage, 
recommitted to U.S. support of the Good Friday Accords on St. Patrick's Day. Keep an eye on this and pray that the troubles remain in the past. Les, what are you following this week? So I'm tracking uh, news out of Prague, uh, the Czech Republic, which has been suffering mightily from coronavirus, uh, finally figured out that it was two Russian agents who blew up an arms cache in the Czech Republic back in 2014. Uh, This had been something of a mystery in the Central European country. Uh, For the past few years, they have identified Russian agents, and it turns out it's the same two Russian agents who poisoned former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter in the United Kingdom a couple of years ago. So amazing news out of the Czech Republic. It's like an episode of Mission Impossible. And let's not forget Alexei Navalny and what he's going through right now. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Michelle Story for research, Les Munson for hosting. Grant for being our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.